Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we are now uh, several weeks after the election of Donald J. Trump to the presidency of the United States, and the magnitude of the decision of the American voters is starting to kind of settle in, uh, not just in the United States, but around the world. Here in Asia, um, it, it kind of dropped, you know, just like a thud, and, and people were not expecting it. They didn't understand what had happened. In many instances, they didn't understand why it had happened. They kind of saw Donald Trump as this kind of cartoonish clown of a reality TV show, who was a billionaire who was very flamboyant, but they never really took him seriously in this part of the world. And I think that was the case for a lot of people in other parts of the world. And in Africa, too, there's this kind of reality that's setting in of the magnitude of what's happening. And, and today we're going to talk about how the kind of the pieces of the geopolitical puzzle are being moved all around right now in Africa. And that relates, of course, to how major African governments are kind of rethinking their international relations, particularly with the United States and, of course, with China. And this is this event is really almost unprecedented. Um, it is in, in its scale. It cancels a whole lot of assumptions. It forces people to radically rethink their options. And I think it's going to cause some real shifts of loyalty in Africa itself. And, and those discussions are going on. There's a lot of thinking going on both in the academic sector in Africa, but also obviously in the political sector. So we wanted to kind of talk to an expert who's been thinking about this, uh, particularly from a South African point of view, but also kind of can help us with a continental picture. Professor John Stremlau is at the University of Witz, uh, which is Witzwatersvan, right next to where you are, Kobus. And he's a professor of international relations, and he's been, you know, all over the media talking about what the implications of the Trump presidency are going to be on Africa. We are thrilled to have Professor Stromlau on our show for the very first time. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's really great to have you on. And again, we're not going to talk about what this means for Africa because we're trying to move beyond to the next step, which is how are African states, particularly South Africa, kind of thinking about their strategies going forward. Let me just give you a sense of the mood, both from, I'm going to quote your, you on uh, here, Professor Stramla, but also a couple other folks, uh, to give you a sense of what I'm picking up as the the kind of the mood. You said in an interview with CNBC Africa last week that you suggested that South Africans should no longer count on the U U.S. in the international community as they have in the past. That echoes a comment from Professor Bola Akintinuera, who was the former director general of the Nigerian Institute of International Affairs, and he was quoted in Nigeria's Guardian newspaper as saying, quote, Certainly the foundation of our ties with the United States must be reviewed. Why should Nigeria accept any aid from the U.S.? It is now necessary for Nigeria to begin to review its agreement with the U.S. and to direct attention to countries like China and see how we can strengthen our relationship, not relationship with the U.S. under Trump. And then I just want to close this. Uh, another colleague of Witz, from you guys at Witz there, Associate Professor of International Relations and the, Associate, and the Assistant Dean of Humanities, David Hornsby, he wrote, Sadly, African states will suffer in this context of decreased global cooperation and appreciation for the common but differentiated responsibility that developed countries like the U.S. maintain. In a new era of crass power politics, African states will only be marginalized further from Western-dominated decision-making. 
Professor Stremlau, it does seem like uh, there is a mood of darkness that seems to be coming over the continent in terms of its international relations. How do you think the election of Donald Trump will affect the global international relations of African countries, particularly South Africa, where you are, vis-a-vis, -vis, say, other great powers like the Chinese and the Europeans? Well, thanks for starting the reference uh, on South Africa, because um, to understand this, like is like we're finding in all of international relations today, politics is local. And we've become accustomed, uh, it's being reassessed now because of political forces to globalization of the economics, of our economics, that we're socially networked and we trade and uh, buy our stuff on the internet without much regard for uh, sovereign frontiers and tax people chase us. And we're sort of comfortable, even though indeed um, the, the reactionary forces in the United States that brought Trump to power and the reactionary forces that led to the British Brexit vote and that are evident all over Europe reflect, I think, the realization that globalization has not benefited those who are being left behind. And, you know, that's a whole big argument story I won't, won't go into. But uh, sitting here in South Africa, the South Africans, uh, and particularly the ANC, has never been naive about the United States. Uh, after all, the United States privileged uh, authoritarian rule down here under apartheid in the name of, of, of putting up a barrier to Cold War expansionary forces by the Soviets and then the Cubans or whatever. So there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a cynical side to the uh, policies of the United States, regardless of who's in power. And there was a rumor that uh, the head of the ANC, Guidi Montasha, floated, uh, well, he claimed it was more than a rumor, that the uh, uh, Haitian-American uh, ambassador, uh, uh, Patrick Gespard, was, was secretly plotting a coup d'etat in South Africa. This is the Obama administration. This is a Haitian-American. Um, God knows what they'll be saying about Donald Trump and his minions uh, going forward, but it's a reminder that it's more complicated. And it is also a reminder that at the same time that the ANC was um, resistant to being told by the U.S. government what to do, it was working its will very effectively within the domestic politics of the United States to mobilize the anti-apartheid forces at all levels, and especially in, in partnership with the young and especially in partnership with, with those Americans who are people of color. And uh, America is rapidly becoming uh, a, a non-white majority country and I thought it had reached a point with the Clinton coalition that would continue the Obama coalition that finally identity politics, horizontal equality, if you will, would become part of the American story that other countries could then relate to. And as a global nation, to use Ali Masri's term, South Africa is the world's second global nation. These are complicated, big terms that you have to you know, sort of take apart. But just for, for, for general purposes here, uh, I thought America had moved uh, to a different place. It has indeed moved to a different place. It's a backward step, but it's not going to erase the fundamental demographics. What you're finding is simply the realization that America was not as cosmopolitan. It was a white-dominated, white-male-dominated, and the, and, the, and the Trump administration would be white-male-dominated. This will make adjustments difficult for some governments. Other governments in Africa 
You know, Obama, when he came out here in 2010, said uh, what Africa needs is strong institutions, not strong men. Trump has a disregard for strong institutions or institutions at all. I mean, what was so striking about his campaign was challenging the integrity of the electoral process. No other candidate had done that ever that anyone could remember since the Civil War. And, and, and he loves and has affinity for strong men. So the, the, the probably the, the, the undercurrent that I worry a lot about with regard to Africa is that the U.S. will, will, will find it, and particularly in the war on terror, very convenient, again, already was, sidling up to authoritarians. So I worry about democracy. I worry about democracy in the United States. I worry about it in South Africa. I worry about it in Africa. That's a long-winded introduction to this no, conversation. That, that, it, very interesting. But, Cobus, let me get your take on this very quickly here. Uh, you know, in the reading that I've been doing of how the Chinese are responding to the Trump you know, presidency is they're of two minds. On the economic front, there is great insecurity that Trump will start a trade war or at least, you know, or potentially throw the American economy into recession, uh, would potentially, you know, undermine the value of the dollar. There's lots of economic insecurity from the part of the Chinese vis-a-vis -vis what Trump can do. On the security front and the foreign policy front, there is a, an enormous amount of optimism. Some Chinese foreign policy experts, particularly those from Carnegie, uh, have said that this is an opening for the Chinese that is a gift for, you know, from above that if Trump turns inward and turns the America first and does not as expansionary in its foreign policy, that this opens a door for them in places like Africa, South America, South Asia here, and the Chinese are already very ambitious in their foreign policy, will push even harder. And I'm thinking most recently of 2016, it's been a very active year for Asian diplomacy in Africa. We had the the TCAD summit with the Japanese in Kenya, which was $12 billion from Tokyo. Obviously, the Chinese with FOCAC in 2015 with $60 billion. How do you think if the United States pulls back from its engagement in Africa, Asian powers like the Japanese and the Chinese might take advantage of this opportunity? I agree. Um, you already see so much more of China physically on the ground in Africa than you necessarily do of the US. You know, China is funding so much infrastructure it is so much more visible in lots of ways. And the U.S. is for a long time, I think, in Africa has occupied this space of this kind of country of dreams. You know, it's a place where pop culture comes from. And it's it's a kind of a almost ephemeral place of, of ideals and, you know, kind of ways of thinking and, and a kind of a shared knowledge. But not necessarily, you don't necessarily see the, the you know, Senegal-America friendship bridge in your city. Um, in Africa, um, that, that kind of physical infrastructure is frequently a lot more Chinese. So if America turns inward and also if America just loses, you know, kind of if, if it becomes known as a place of broken dreams, of, 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 a, of a lack of, of equality, you know, kind of, of a space where especially black people can't, can't live a good life, then it becomes a kind of a, there's no real reason for Africans to engage with the U.S., you know, kind of, but there's always more reasons for Africans to engage with East Asia simply because East Asia is paying and also East Asia is here. They're here ready to shake your hand. Um, John, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit in the, in relation to that, if you could talk a little bit about blackness and race um, and, you know, kind of how you see the racial dimensions of the of the U.S. election playing in Africa. <laughs> I, I, it's, you know, it's very early days. Trump's not going to put a government together for a while. And the people he's talking about nominating, I know some of them and I certainly know others by reputation, 
um, really is a scrambled mess right now in terms of trying to figure out where the Trump administration will be positioned on particular issues. And I think it's safe to say that Africa is not going to be a priority given all the other concerns that are, that are, that are, that are, uh, that are out there. Um, race defines America. The, 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 the poison in the bloodstream since the founding of the republic was brought to the surface by Trump being so blatant and open about it. And now he's got Steve Bonner in the, in the White House as his, as his chief advisor, um, uh, strategic advisor. And, and he's, a, he's an anti-Semite, he's a blatant, openly, and, he, and, and he's, a, he's, a, he's a blatant uh, white nationalist. Uh, I don't think that uh, uh, African elites, certainly, that are cosmopolitan and open, will take this any more as fundamental shift as, as I do. Uh, I think it's all part of the transition going on within America. I guess I'd like to come back to the, to the economics for a second, because uh, you're right, it's great. I think the, I think the best story post-colonial post in Africa is the, is the Chinese presence here and their involvement. I'd like to see more. I'd like to see more of, of, of other countries. And in these economic times, it's not easy to make those connections, as you know. But when you talk about the Chinese in Africa, you guys know this better than I, which Chinese are you talking about? Are you talking about provinces? Are you talking about companies or, or, or media uh, corporations? Are you talking about the official government? One of the things which intrigues me is how sophisticated I found Chinese diplomats in recent years, as opposed to, say, 10 or 15 years ago, um, how much they are attuned to what's going on in the continent. And, and I, I can often find, just as I do with American uh, diplomats, you know, we'll talk to you if I'm from an NGO and I'm, I'm working on something that's of mutual interest, but at least let's not get Beijing or Washington too much agitated about this because, you know, they're thinking about other things and I don't know what, what you know, this thing could cut with me. I just find it a much more... Um, uh, interesting environment to engage China in Africa uh, because they're experimenting here. They're doing election observations. I, I you know, I, I, I met with the observers in the Madagascar election, for example. Um, I, I, I could see that in the ballot boxes in Guinea, there's the Chinese flag. You know, I go to China and Beijing and I talk about democracy in Africa and I say, oh, by the way, it's really great that you guys are supporting it. Well, how much are they supporting it and where and who? Depends sometimes just on the ambassador. It depends on what the issues are, the economic ties. It's a complicated map, but it is a map that I think benefits from departing the old geostrategic framework that dominated post-Second World War. And that's what we're seeing. And it does mean that African countries are going to have to work more on their international relations, be more sophisticated, and that's hard for the small ones to do. It's not hard for South Africa to do, but South Africa's got a crisis of leadership here. Anyway, I don't want to go on. There's big well, subjects and fun to talk. I mean, you, you, you bring up kind of the long-held American dream here. And it is, this is actually not even just an American dream. It's a European dream as well. Let's just kind of put it out there. It's the white dream that one day down the road, there will be this tripartite cooperation among Chinese, Africans, and Americans or Europeans. And it, it is something that the West has put out there time and time again that they would like to do. And the Chinese look at this, and I think, uh, with a little bit of humor, because they feel that, that Africa increasingly is their sphere of influence, that they have legitimacy in Africa that they don't have in other parts of the world. And they're very selective on where they cooperate outside, say, of multinational operations like the UN and IMF and World Bank. But any kind of tripartite cooperation that happens, in my opinion, what Cobus and I have seen over the years is happenstance and incidental. It's not a part of any broader agenda. 
it does happen from time to time, and it makes big news in, in, in the West. But I don't think the Chinese take it seriously to work directly with the U.S. or Europeans. It might be at the sub-ambassadorial level. If that happens, again, it's just by coincidence that, you know, two guys get along and they say, why don't we try something? But I don't think that idea can scale uh, beyond what it is right now. And I don't think the Chinese well, see any you're, interest. You're very much of a statist, Eric. I understand that. But, uh, and, and these are states, after all. And they're represented by states. Uh, and you're, you're, but I, I, I do take a little bit umbrage uh, 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 at the characterization. I'm, I'm speaking very practically. You know, yes, they're just two guys. But Princeton Lyman, when he was special representative on Africa for the for the Obama administration, and 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 Ambassador Zhang, who was 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 Xi Jinping's guy. I understand mm-hmm. Xi Jinping has special interest in Africa and came to FOAC, and I know all that. But still. They were making very, very useful, I thought, efforts together, not successful in Sudan. I think on piracy and, and, and the, the maritime safety, uh, the, the, the tripartite sort of experimental conference recently in Lome in parallel with the, with the AU was probably a step forward, not a big step, but a, but, a, but, a, but a good one. You know, we all know the Congo is a mess. And the fact that the um, that the working level diplomats in, in, in Kinshasa between uh, 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 China and the United States, as in Guinea or as in Liberia, which I've seen, um, is probably indicative of the kind of granular diplomacy um, that is more relevant to the lives of the people in the circumstance than any of this grand chessboard uh, uh, on the global stage. That's all. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. I- I wonder if I could bring both of you back to to economics for for a moment. The um, you know one one of the big the, you know we don't know a lot about what what Donald Trump is planning for Africa or even what he really is planning for China. Um, but the one thing that that was coming out during the campaign was restrictions on Chinese trade. So if there you know and a lot of a lot of kind of pessimists um, about the future of the Trump administration have been predicting some form of of restricted trade or some form of trade war with China. If something like that happens, how will that impact Africa? Oh, well, I just wanted to harken back to your you know reference to the TPP uh, and, and, and security. Uh, I don't know who is going to be in there for security, but TPP is a dead letter now. If I was in Beijing, I'd be pretty happy about that. The TPP was a repivot exercise. The Chinese could not have been all that happy about the TPP. It's now a lot more open uh, uh, terrain for them on, the, on that economic front. In, in Africa, look, Donald Trump, according to his biographer, has never read a book. And he's suddenly <laughs> discovering that, oh, my God, you know, this is reality. It's not reality TV. Uh, he's a congenital liar. So how, the, at least publicly, I don't know, maybe his family thinks he tells the truth uh, to them. But but how how in the world do, do governments try to deal with a statesman in Washington who's who's in, in, in the U.S. context, the most powerful person, certainly, uh, and and not uh, and, and not be able to be sure what the hell he's saying, because he says all so many different things to so many different people all the time. So I think it's going to take some time to sort that out, which does give um, the, the the other countries a chance to to to, to make um, their calculations about their own interest in, in Africa or the region. But I just can't resist one last word about BRICS because both China and Russia and, uh, and Brazil, I mean, all of them, India, uh, uh, South Africa for sure, are also preoccupied with the sheer problems of governing in this world that uh, a lot of this stuff 
was is, is pipe dreams for cooperation, except when you've got sort of real, real interests on a practical front. So, um, well, I, one analysis that I heard, which I thought was very interesting. Again, this is coming from a uh, a Chinese scholar up in Beijing at the uh, at one of the think tanks. It was that the day that Trump becomes president, January 20th, 2017, for the next six months will be the most dangerous time in, in, in global politics because Trump needs to show to his base that he's willing to stand up to China, whether that means he's going to throw you know, a battle group into the South China Sea to kind of confront them there, whether it means he's going to put trade sanctions up on certain products, whether it's somehow he's got to show the Chinese he means business. Likewise, I think it's, well, what's that? I think it's scaremongering. I, it, it I, mean, is, I think it, no, no, but it is scaremongering. But but conversely, she also has President Xi has a domestic audience that he needs to show that he's tough to as well. That he will not be bossed around by the Americans, and that no. these two leaders have to establish a sense of trust in order for them to work together. And the concern is in in this six months that a there's a miscalculation, but b that the the uncertainty of how these two you know the two largest economies will will kind of inter- interact with one another could cause so much uncertainty in markets that that by itself would destabilize parts of Africa as well just economically because of the global uncertainty as we, as we see Trump's policies begin to unfold what's your what's your thoughts to that I I've, I've changed my my views in the last uh, a week by the way and and, and bear in mind that I've been eating a lot of humble pie on this election because I forecast a very different outcome. And I, I said, you know, the, 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 the first indication of where things are going to go in the world is whether or not he, Trump, uh, designates China currency manipulator and slaps a big tariff on them. And, you know, a smart economist who know a lot more about this than I did said, yeah, well, what about all those treasuries that the, that, that the Chinese own? What about the consumer goods that are, that are essential? What about all the companies doing business? Um, I would be surprised if, uh, and especially given the fact that Trump really doesn't care about his constituents. I mean, he's moved on, you know? I mean, he, he, this, this base of his may be important in four years from now, but he's a reality TV guy, and it shows in this election the, 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 the embarrassment that he was during the debates, the dislike that people had, sort of flipped in the last couple of days beforehand when Xi Jinping says, this is a circus. It shows you why isn't it good that China is run by a serious government as opposed to the chaos of democracy. He's got a point, even though it's not a point I agree with. Uh, the Americans are going to have to sort this out, but I don't think that Trump is gives any indication uh, of, of wanting to, I think he's spooked by the job. I think he's, everybody is. Um, and, and the fact that he's got the nuclear codes sends me up the wall if I think about it. But if, uh, you know, having survived the, 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 the Cuban Missile Crisis and remembered very vividly, uh, we haven't been close to that again. Uh, you know, I worry about terrorism and I worry about some big catastrophic act that could lead to some miscalculation that's independent of, the, the, you know, each other. Um, and, and, and that's on the Russian front as well, where the nuclear weapons still are pointed or, or, or were. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm not so sure that the analyst in China uh, uh, who's trying to get himself advanced is 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 catching the right kind of attention, okay. saying that the next six months are going to be that scary. Wouldn't be the first time that a Chinese analyst misread the United States, so that's a fair I- comment. Uh, Kobus, let me let me talk to you a little bit about the narratives of Africa, and I think this is very interesting in the context of both the Chinese and the U.S. 
Uh, we've talked about what we've called the embedded narratives. That is, you know, what media and kind of the perceptions of Africa, which is, you know, famine, HIV, war, you know, mining, you know, all of those different things. I think in Trump's world, that very much defines his worldview of Africa. I mean, he's a very unsophisticated guy. He doesn't have people around him necessarily who are very sophisticated about Africa. John talked about earlier that Africa is probably not going to be a priority. The only point that I will disagree with John in one sense is on the security front, where I think that they see the rise of Islamic extremism in northern Nigeria, in the Maghreb, certainly in Egypt, Tunisia, and 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 and, and, and those countries where the United States could become very aggressive uh, and and really become engaged and devote more aid and more resources to the military side. Talk to me a little bit about what effect do you think that would have on geopolitics, the growth of American securities presence in, uh, in, in, in that region, and how do you think the Chinese might respond? In the first place, I think one, one needs to make the point that that won't be necessarily such a new trend. I mean, that is roughly what we've seen under the, you know, kind of under the Obama administration to a certain extent, um, you know, in the sense that the Obama administration was relatively reticent about Africa. They weren't, you know, they had big ideas and big plans for Africa, but not because of internal U.S. politics. A lot of those didn't really move forward that much. Um, and then they, what would what what we did see was increasing concern about about uh, you know Islamic extremism um, in North Africa, um, and you know so some increased securitization in the ties. So you know kind of my my feeling, and I think John will probably know a lot more about this than I do, but uh, is that we'll probably see more of that. Um, you know during you know during the, the Trump administration and not a lot else. Um, you know, the Obama was frequently criticized within Africa for not engaging Africa enough. And I can well imagine that Trump would have less interest than, than, the, than President Obama in engaging with Africa. And that, to a large extent, again, seems to me to just be, be pushing Africa towards China. You know, kind of um, that, that's simply that, you know, kind of this, the, the core relationship will, you know, the, the U.S. Will, will recede a little bit from that relationship simply because they are also so... So focused on inter on the internal situation, and the the U.S. is so divided, it's within itself um, that they won't just simply won't be a lot of time for Africa, um, and you know, kind of China has time for Africa. Um, John, am I oversimplifying this? Oh, no, I l listen. The the um, uh, you're you're right certainly about Africa not being a priority. Of the Trump administration. I cannot name an African advisor. I knew most of the people that were involved in the Clinton campaign, or at least the, the Johnny Carson team that was working on the transition. And I can't tell you uh, an African ad ad advisor. Uh, I think you're right about, I don't disagree, uh, Eric, by the way, with your, with your characterization on the security front. Clearly, if Boko or Al-Shabaab come up with some sort of a 9-11 event, I don't think they will, but if they could, or do too much of this provocative stuff, Trump has a thin skin and he could be reactive in that regard. Uh, it's interesting that Rince uh, Priebus, who is his chief of staff, is actually kind of a budget hawk, as are uh, Jeff Sessions and some of the other people around Trump. And Trump himself, uh, although he's talking about spending a lot of money, a trillion dollars on infrastructure, but these guys have been talking about sort of some of them cutting back on the Pentagon expenditures. And, and then a lot of the security advisors in the Republican Party who were for bigger bigger spending and more assertive and criticized the, the, the Obama administration were so fearful of Trump that they identified against him. So it's it's really hard to know who, who's going to pop up 
and know something about Africa, first of all, and then decide what they're going to do with with the Pentagon budget when they're going to try to come up with a trillion dollars to do the infrastructure, if their rhetoric at the moment is is is, is true. The, the one, I can't resist just this one little anecdote that 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 Newt Gingrich, who I have no time for at all, but the former Speaker of the House, is often rumored as um, uh, Secretary a few of Now, maybe you guys know this, but his 1971 PhD dissertation for Tulane was on the DRC, then Zaire, and he took a rather sympathetic view to colonialism, I'm told, I haven't read it, on, on health and education issues. So Newt Gingrich, of all people, wrote a PhD on the Congo. And lest we not forget that Newt Ging- one of Newt Gingrich's key criticisms of Obama was that he was anti-colonial. In uh, he called him anti-colonial in uh, in the Kenyan context, which I think is just you know kind of bizarre from all from all directions. Let's one other quick point on this, to just so, so we don't lose sight of the fact that the one thing that's really interesting about the lack of bipartisanship during the Obama years is Africa was one area the Republicans and the Democrats cooperated on. And, and, and George W. Bush was very interested in, and, and generous in its, in its own limited way toward Africa with PEPFAR. So that, you know, it, it, that there, there's a certain momentum to the kind of programs like AGOA that run till 2025. I don't think, even though it, in, in concept AGOA is not uh, a Trump I, uh, a preference because he's a, he's a mercantilist, zero-sum, I win you lose kind of trader, but um, but Africa may just sort of wallow along, not with a lot of attention, unless there's some terrorist attack. You know, AGOA, which is the African Growth and Opportunity Act, which allows uh, free trade access from Africa into the U.S. market, it, it's so small, the volume, if you cut out oil, that, you know, I, I think you're right, John, that I don't think it will make much difference. It's not like TPP or NAFTA in terms of the scale of free trade. And nobody's accused Africa of stealing American manufacturing jobs. So I would be suspicious that if AGOA became an issue, again, it's 2025, so it's even past the Trump, the first Trump administration. John, I know you're looking forward to the second Trump administration already. Um, let's quickly go around. And I'd like to kind of close our discussion with where we think we'll be in a year from now. Um, you know, in terms of what we'll be talking about. And John, I hope you'll be able to come back and join us. Uh, My prediction is that I think Africa, much of the continent, as in much of the global south, um, will be suffering if, you know, a severe recession. I think that the economies are not strong. um, And I think they've been on a downward kind of shift. China is not going to come in strong enough into Africa to boost spending or to boost trade. It can't happen fast enough. $60 billion is a lot of money, but it's not enough to keep, uh, to keep the continent afloat. And I think that the uncertainty with the new U.S. leadership uh, will be one that only contributes to market volatility f- and keeping oil prices down, keeping commodity prices down. So I foresee a very difficult road ahead for Africa. Uh, and I do think that the Chinese will do a very, very robust effort to take advantage of a potentially new political vacuum uh, in the international space in Africa. Kobus, um, give me your, your, your prediction for a year out. Where will we be? I tend to agree with you. I think things will be rough um, in Africa. I think what we might see on the other side is, together with uh, you know, kind of continued engagement with China, we might see growing engagement with other middle um, and emerging powers. 
um, that you know, kind of that that the the relative uh, withdrawal of the U.S. from Africa might create spaces for other other both political and economic powers to to step in. Um, and also that South Africa itself as a kind of a political economic, you know, force within the continent is going to take maybe on even more influence than they had before. But I'm just guessing. John, what do you think? Well, um, just one quick word, you know, Ch China's restructuring its economy and, and it, it's not going to be the market for primary commodities that it was either, I guess, going forward. But the one issue, I, I, I tend to be very concerned about the year ahead, and it's a little further time horizon than just the year, although I'd be happy to come back and talk to you in a year. But, and, but that is that the, the, the climate denialists who um, are predominant in the, in the in the inner circle around Trump and Trump himself, although his golf course in Scotland is running risk of being flooded and he's appealing for a wall that the local authorities don't want to put up. So he knows that the oceans are rising, but Africa is warming and particularly this part of Africa is warming at twice the global mean. And the consequences of climate change on the continent, as you all know, is, is really dire. And the U.S.-China agreement was historic and important, even though it's voluntary, as is the whole Paris process. I thought this was really frontier stuff in international relations of vital interest to everybody, and it involves everybody. And, and, and China, I mean, Africa is the least responsible, most vulnerable, least able to cope with climate change. So that in the out years, if the U.S. really walks away from what 121 nations or 123 have agreed to, uh, to, to have their own um, uh, self-standards and monitoring, kind of like a uh, kind of like a, a NEPAD, uh, uh, APRM, uh, a peer review process, um, then I really think that's very, very bad for Africa. And I think there is no leadership on Africa comparable to Tabu Mbeki's that he provided in the first decade of this century. And South Africa is not going to step up to the plate. It's batting way below uh, uh, its, its, its weight and uh, fighting way below its weight. And, and therefore, uh, if, if, the, if, the, if the continent doesn't have leadership, then I'm all the more depressed about the prospects, at least in the near term. And I'm an optimistic kind of hopeful guy generally. Sorry yeah. about ending on that note. No, no, no. I think you're right. I think they're, it's all but certain that they will walk away from this climate accord because they walked. the United States couldn't ratify the first climate accord, which was in Japan. Uh, and that one never got done. And, and, you know, Trump will certainly not call on the United States business and citizens to make any compromises in their lifestyle. In fact, he's obviously going to promote coal uh, you know, yep. that was a key, you know, election promise, campaign promise for him. So uh, I think climate is now, you know, that's a dead issue in the United States. And that will, you know, and without the United States, you really have no global climate accord, period. It's and, not an issue with civil society, by the way, and with the, with the public. And don't forget, Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote. And with that segment of the society, climate change matters. It does, but they don't ratify treaties in the U.S. Senate. So that's no, that. they don't. They, yeah, it's an executive action, you see, so far, and, and Trump's going to undo it. And I, I grant you that. But this fight is going to have to continue. It's not over. So we are leaving on an optimistic note there. So uh, sure. Professor John Stromlau, the Stromlau, thank you so much for joining us. Well, professor Stromlau is a professor of international relations at Wits University, right alongside Cobus there in Johannesburg, South Africa. Cobus and I will be back again next week with another edition of the show, and we'll focus a little bit more on China, Africa. But today, it's such a, you know an exciting time to be an observer of international politics because of what's happening in the United States in the global space. We thought we would kind of broaden the focus a little bit. Um, 
Uh, and so we'd like to hear what you think. Please do join us on our Facebook page and all the different social media channels that we have. We'll be back again soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com/slash/ChinaAfricaProject to share your thoughts on today's show, or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at Eolander. That's E O L A N D E R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa.